0: Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcasts. Uh, It's a great pleasure today to be able to introduce Professor Henrietta Harrison from the University of Oxford. Henrietta, thanks for being with us. I would like to start by thinking about um, one key element in the construction of the past, which is the archive. Uh, It's the thing that historians go on about in our research. And uh, you have recently written in an American Historical Review article about the ways in which the archive have helped construct an absolutely key episode in uh, the history of China in the late 18th century under the Qing dynasty. Could you just sort of introduce what the episode is before we get into the archive?
1: So what we're talking about here is the first British Embassy to China, which took place in 1793. And the British uh, decided to send an ambassador And the embassy got as far as Beijing and was then sent away without achieving any of its various negotiating goals with a famous letter from from the Qianlong Emperor, um, which actually covered all the negotiating goals and why he was not going to give anything the British had asked. But it also includes this famous sentence about how we are not interested in your manufactures. And it has become a very famous quotation.
0: And so is your argument in the article that uh, the quotation has been miscontextualized effectively by the ways that historians have sort of constructed it in the archive? Or what is the relationship of this uh, statement to the archive?
1: So the quotation has really had a life almost of its own, largely disconnected from the archive since about the 1950s and 60s it's just been very very widely used and I became interested to work out how that quotation had become important and the first thing to discover was really that that letter that the Qianlong Emperor wrote to George III was not of any interest to anyone really until about 1911 which is the time of the revolution the republican revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty.
0: What was the nature of the interest that emerged after 1911
1: then? Well, obviously, while the Qing Dynasty was in power, most of the history of the Qing Dynasty that was being written in China was of a more or less glorificatory variety, and people using the archives were using them either to glorify the emperor or to instruct the emperor, or, or for the purposes of... Um, training people, you know, that's what archives are written for usually, archives are produced by bureaucracies, they're about how we work, how we should work next time, you consult them when you want to to know what to do next. After the dynasty fell, obviously there was a very different impetus to how the uh, the archive was used. The archive then came to be used um, to explain what was wrong with the dynasty and to explain why it was right that it should have fallen, so to legitimate the revolution.
0: So this is part of a long tradition of um, dynastic history writing where the next dynasty explains why the previous dynasty fell or is it something different in the early 20th century?
1: Well, I think to say that it's part of a long tradition of dynastic history writing makes it sound as if China has something special. It seems to me that after any revolution there will be a tendency... I mean, I don't know a great deal about French history but my guess is that after the French Revolution um, people used the archives, the elaborate archives of the French French state um, to tell a quite different story about France than was told before the French Revolution. And I think you would find that in any transfer, major transfer of power.
0: Right. So one of the uh, critiques that is then being made of uh, the Qing emperor at this point is that he's not uh, sufficiently interested in military events. He's
1: militarily weak. Well, so the story that has been told about the McCartney embassy is that McCartney, Lord McCartney, the British ambassador, went to see the emperor and he refused to kowtow, that is to get down on both knees and put his head to the floor nine times uh, out of um, respect for the emperor. Now. Actually, I think he did kowtow. In any case, McCartney's account of what happened when he went home was that he had received none of his requests. I mean, he obviously didn't emphasise that, but everyone knew that. And um, that he had firmly refused to kowtow.
0: So there's a huge amount of emphasis on, on the protocol and on bodily comportment and so on, right?
1: Yes. Um, so there's a huge amount of emphasis on that, and that is then in the, in, by the British played back into a vision of China as a place where people are interested in ritual, um, where the problem is cultural difference, where the problem is... An, the tribute system, uh, a, a completely different worldview, which doesn't a- acknowledge equality. So the c- problem is cultural difference between East and West, and that that is all constructed around this episode.
0: Whereas in fact, the Emperor Qianlong was uh, was really pretty concerned with military issues.
1: So the the Emperor Qianlong and indeed other Qing emperors were aware that to some extent the British were potentially a threat on the coast. Obviously the Emperor Chenlong was unable to predict the opium war that took place 50 years later. That you know, it's unlikely that he was thinking about that, but he was aware that the British had come in a fine, large warship with very heavy firepower. Um, and in fact, he thought the warship was larger than it was because they presented a model of a warship, which he was told was the warship they'd come in, whereas actually it was the best warship in the British Navy <laughs> that they gave, an, uh, gave a model of. But nevertheless, they'd come in a 63-gun warship. These ships uh, threw very large cannonballs. They c- were clearly had the potential to be very destructive.
0: Right. And so then just to get back to the early 20th century, then in this retelling or reframing of the story after the fall of the Qing, uh, this military interest or concern that the emperor has is played down by a generation of historians in the 1910s and 1920s.
1: In in general, the, the military interest completely vanishes. The story that's told about this is a story told about cultural difference. And that is done by the way the studies of the embassy work which all look at the period of how it got to um, China and how it travelled up from the coast to Beijing and they end at this high point of the audience when McCartney, they say, refused to kowtow and then they stop. However, all the archival content about the military response comes after that Um, and it's handled not in the big diplomatic moment of the audience in Beijing, but as the embassy travels south towards to go back to Guangzhou and to the Canton and then um, to England.
0: So in many ways, this is just a very basic story of sort of how historians or or scholars, uh, where they stop the story that they're telling.
1: Yes, but it's intertwined with the story of archives because as it happens, those two different events are in different places in the Qing archive, so it's also a story about what we call archival fonts, the w- the ways in which archives are divided up by the state that built them. So in this case, the Qing, the Grand Council, the Junji Chu, had a had its archives, and when the archives were opened up in the um, after the 1911 revolution. At that time, the Grand Council had been the major decision-making body, so those were the archives people most wanted to see. However, the Grand Council was important when the emperors were children, which happened in the late Qing Dynasty, and the council was where all the big decisions were made. However, that was not how the Qianlong Emperor ran his court. The Qianlong Emperor was an immensely powerful individual ruler, and... In his case, the military matters are in his personal correspondence, which was opened up subsequently. And then the
0: the, the story takes, as you say, so it, it has an afterlife of its own one element that you also talk about is is an American afterlife through the scholarship of this very famous East Asian scholar John King Fairbank. Could you say a little bit about that?
1: Yes, so Fairbank is fascinating because Fairbank is a real archives buff. He trains his students. He's famous for training his students to use the archives. His students went on to become incredibly um, famous in American academia. And they based their work on the archives. But in fact, the archives, he was writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s. By this stage, there's communist China. They have, there's, the archives are effectively closed. Um, and what they're working from is published archives. And what the archives published was what the Chinese scholars wanted to tell the story about the Qing. And it was the story about why the Qing failed because it was, well, it was two stories. The story about why the Qing failed and the story about what China should do about Japan. And those were the two big stories that these Chinese scholars were interested in, and they were what they fed to the American scholars. Now, the American scholars felt they had the truth, the archive, the real documents. And of course, it was a massive step forward on what um, Western scholars had had before, but it was also being shaped by those who composed and structured what was being issued from the archives.
2: It's very interesting that you showed this side of the story because, I think within international international history, international relations, this course is that Fairbank's interpretation shaped this idea of the Qing being weak and is all about ritual. But in fact, you show that there is a different level of circulation of knowledge, which is...
1: But also, Fairbank, we talk about these ideas as coming from Fairbank, but to be honest... Fairbank has a great achievement, but the ideas that we talk about, which we label as Fairbank's views, were actually ideas that were being developed by Chinese scholars like Jiang Tingfu in the 1930s who were men of Fairbank's own generation um, and with whom he was interacting very closely. And he had differences in, in his ideas and nerves and he was in argument with them. He's never hiding that. But the fact is that we've abstracted a much larger subject from Fairbank.
2: Okay, but then this shows another dimension to how international mm. relations used the past. Mm. And it seems to me that in addition to this reframing of this episode in the 19th 90- 1920s there's another reframing happening right now how does the current chinese government use international relations and the idea of past international relations to to promote their ideas of the chinese model of international relations as a counter model to the current
1: valid western one yes so they um are very enthusiastic to look back at this idea of a Chinese tribute system, which has been very much buttressed by this image of Lord McCartney and the kowtow, the idea that everyone, people, Wang Guo Lai Chao, that, that 10,000 kingdoms come to pay homage. And that that idea of, which got labelled by Fairbank as a tribute system, now, obviously that's a 60, 50s, 60s sort of phrase, system, a, a very sociological idea. There's no, there's no obvious Chinese, there's certainly no obvious Qing dynasty Chinese for the word tribute system. And indeed, tribute wasn't really the main thing in it. But so there is this ancient Chinese idea of cosmic rule and of course many countries have ideas of cosmic rule but the central making that idea central which was one of the things the british did when they wished to change the international relation of china and them was then is has then been put into western histories of china with this idea of china as the center of a tribute system in opposition to a system of equal international relations and the Chinese government is now enthusiastic about that system as potentially providing a different way of uh, organizing China's relations with Southeast Asia.
2: And what roles do historians and also archives play for the Chinese government?
1: So the history of this, I think it's not, this isn't, just something that is state-directed propaganda. I think a lot of people are interested, and specialists in international relations are interested in alternative models for international relations. Indeed, many... um, more radical, younger, Western specialist in international relations would like to find something like the Chinese tribute system as an alternate to the current, to the Westphalian model of international relations. So it's, there's, there's a genuine scholarly interest in expanding this, and Chinese yeah. scholars share that.
0: And just as we're sort of back in the question of the archives, I wonder if you could sort of say, what role the huge projects of digitization that are occurring in, in China, in particular at the moment, play into this wider story? Once everything's digitised, do we not have to worry about this
1: archival framing anymore? No, I think digitization is, from that point of view, extremely worrying. Because once everything's digitised... It's not necessarily read according to the structures of the bureaucracy that produce it. It's cherry picked, and people, which, you know, basically people are inclined to read according to search terms. Rather than having to plough through, I mean, this is a problem with digitization generally, not just of archives, rather than having to read a huge body of material, the scholar to do new and really exciting forms of history. But it also makes the framing much harder to appreciate.
0: So can you foresee in the future that the McCartney mission will continue to be reframed, uh, perhaps in a different way in the future with digital
1: sources? Uh, My hope is that the McCartney mission might almost disappear into a broader 18th century global history, where it simply becomes part of um, British expansion in Asia, part of the history of India, and not an event that is being used to justify this question of the two different world orders. Professor
0: Henrietta Harrison, many thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you.